Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 9, Episode 17, The Road to Kyoto. Oda Nobunaga's victories over the Imagawa clan and the Saito clan had earned him a reputation as a cunning leader. With the backing of an Ashikaga claimant, he had a real opportunity to become something more than a warlord. He could become a unifier. If he hoped to eventually become the power behind the throne, he would need to first carve a path toward the capital itself. To the west of Owari province lay Ise province, famous for its grand shrine, as well as numerous other pilgrimage destinations. Similar to Shinano province, Ise did not have a unified government, but was ruled piecemeal by many powerful clans who sometimes cooperated, but more often feuded. Subduing Ise province was not a necessary step in the process of simply getting to the capital. That path lay through Omi province to the west of Mino. So why was Nobunaga bothering? The short answer is that the chieftain of the Oda was a man who planned ahead, and who learned from the mistakes of his predecessors. Many would-be kingmakers and puppeteers had been shipwrecked by haste, and those who rushed to immediately seize the capital found it an easy capture, but soon fell into difficulties keeping hold of it. Nobunaga understood that merely grabbing the capital would not be enough to ensure a permanent victory. He needed to get Kansai more thoroughly under his control. His efforts in Ise began, naturally, in the northern part of the province where it bordered Owari. In 1567 and 1568, he sent raiding parties to test the defenses of the clans who ruled in that part of the province, chiefly the Kitabatake clan. In addition to the physical skirmishes, Nobunaga and the vassals he placed in charge of the incursion utilized diplomacy, rivalry, and fear to attain their objectives. Worthy of particular mention is Takigawa Kazumasu, a trusted retainer of Nobunaga who was frequently dispatched both as a warrior and as a diplomat. His approach to Ise province combined these two skills as he walked a delicate balance of recruiting, subduing, arranging alliances, and sometimes breaking them. Which is to say that Kazumasu frequently used more peaceful means of gaining control of different areas within Ise province, but absolutely did not hesitate to use wanton destruction as a psychological weapon. Early in the campaign, the Oda forces under Kazumasu's command were besieging Kusa Castle in northern Ise, which was held by a minor clan in the service of the Kitabatake. Kazumasu did not hesitate to order that every rice field, homestead, and Buddhist temple within sight of the castle be razed to the ground. His goal was probably to encourage the garrison of Kusa Castle to attempt a sortier, but instead the warriors behind the walls arranged for a secret departure and joined with their Kitabatake overlords to the south. This was still a good result for Kazumasu, as his forces quickly took the fortress once they realized it had been abandoned and the Oda clan gained a foothold in Ise province. The expansion of Oda clan power in Ise province was a gradual process, but it was helped along considerably by Kazumasu's use of subterfuge and false intelligence. 
he managed to recruit an influential samurai who worked for the Kitabatake, who frequently spread rumors among them of large Oda clan armies bearing down on various fortifications. This would often result in said fortifications being abandoned by terrified Castellans and their garrisons, and in a few cases the Castellans actually pledged fealty to Nobunaga and gave their castles over willingly. The utilization of skillful retainers like Kazumasu was one of Nobunaga's greatest strengths. He built strong relationships with these retainers who respected his battlefield prowess and almost certainly feared his wrath. They understood that while he was capable of brilliant feats of tactical superiority, he was also very much able to utilize imaginative cruelty against those he despised. With Takigawa Kazumasu ably handling the campaign in Ise province, Nobunaga was free to pursue conquest in Omi province, which lay between him and Kyoto. The Rokkaku clan of Omi opposed Ashikaga Yoshiaki, and Nobunaga rightly understood that they could become a problem. Rather than risk getting bogged down in fighting in Omi province, an error committed by more than one would-be kingmaker before him, he decided to raise one of the largest armies yet seen in Japanese history. Conscripting, recruiting, and calling his loyal samurai from Owari, Mino, Mikawa, Totomi, and Ise, he assembled an army said to number 50,000 strong. Nobunaga marched with this massive force into Omi province and proceeded to reach out to local daimyo to support Ashikaga Yoshiaki's claim to the shogunal throne. Much of his correspondence went unanswered, which, by the way, is one of the Japanese ways of saying no, but he did receive at least one negative reply, which was bold enough to proclaim that Ashikaga Yoshihide was the rightful shogun. Nobunaga's response was to besiege the castle where the correspondent lived in Omi, and the fortress surrendered after a few hours. While this supposed loyalty to Yoshiaki is all very touching, I hope none of you are under the illusion that Nobunaga is being guided by any sense of justice or loyalty. You might think ill of Nobunaga for this disregard, but it's worth noting that the Ashikaga Bakufu in exile also did not feel any particular affinity for the fool of Owari. Akechi Mitsuhide found himself on the receiving end of Yoshiaki's wrath on many occasions, when Nobunaga would fail to reply in a timely manner or act in a way that was contrary to the claimant's orders. Yoshiaki, it seems, still preferred the Asakura clan, whose peaceful, prosperous rule in Echizen province was the envy of the nation. He continued corresponding with them, constantly trying to convince them to come to his aid. While the Rokkaku swore that they would kill any Oda clan samurai who set foot on Omi province, the sheer numbers of Nobunaga's great army were too great for them to attempt an ambush. Instead, they huddled in their houses, terrified at the thought that Nobunaga's wrath could bring such a number of armed people into their midst. Meanwhile, their subordinate clans made plans to cut deals with this new regional superpower. After crossing Lake Biwa, which lies roughly in the center of Omi province, Nobunaga received his first real challenge. Occupying Shoryuji Castle was one member of the Miyoshi Triumvirate, Iwanari Tomomichi. 
Reputed to be both a brave warrior and a skilled commander, Tomomichi had managed to recruit some spare warriors from the Rokkaku clan to hopefully defeat Nobunaga's army in the field before they could threaten the capital. I was unable to find any estimate whatsoever regarding the size of the army led by Iwanari Tomomichi in this engagement, but my extremely limited guess would be at least a few thousand in total. How did Tomomichi hope to take on an Oda clan army of 50,000 with only a few thousand of his own? It is tempting to wonder whether he was trying to repeat the same impressive feat which Nobunaga himself achieved when his own meager forces successfully defeated an army of around 25,000, but Tomomichi does not appear to have attempted any sort of ambush. I think it more likely that Tomomichi was making a show of doing his duty, although we may more generously postulate that he may have hoped that a brave defeat would spur the rest of the Miyoshi clan into action. The Miyoshi were a far cry from their former power. Their leadership was not only split between the triumvirate, they also had to contend with their troublesome former retainer Matsunaga Hisahide. You may recall Hisahide as the man who stormed Shogun Ashikaga Yoshiteru's palace, an act which inspired the sitting shogun to commit seppuku. Hisahide had since been placed in charge of Yamato province, which lies to the south of Kyoto and includes the old capital of Nara. He had since broken ties with the Miyoshi clan, and there had been intermittent fighting between them for a few years. Thus, by the time Nobunaga began marching his army through Omi province to restore the rightful shogun, the Miyoshi clan were anything but ready to respond to this threat. Iwanari Tomomichi's meager army at Shoryuji Castle did not have a very good chance of repelling the attack, and, surprising no one, they lost the battle and were forced to retreat to the castle itself. After a day enduring the siege of Nobunaga's army, Iwanari Tomomichi withdrew his army in secret, leaving the fortress undefended. When the Oda clan army saw that their enemies had abandoned the fortification, they took possession and continued their march toward the capital. Nobunaga was not entirely bereft of friendly clans in Omi province. In 1564, he had laid some diplomatic groundwork for his 1568 incursion by arranging a marriage between his sister Oichi and the chieftain of the Azai clan, Azai Nagamasa. The Azai clan hailed from northeastern Omi province and were close allies of the Asakura clan of Echizen, whom we mentioned earlier. Their daimyo, Asakura Yoshikage, was Ashikaga Yoshiaki's first choice to be his champion, but declined the offer. The Azai had formerly been retainers of the Rokkaku clan, and the Asakura clan gave them much-needed assistance in gaining their independence after Azai Nagamasa won a great victory against the Rokkaku in 1560. The Azai-Asakura alliance ran deep, and Nobunaga probably already had some inkling that it would be best to court the support of the Azai and see if he couldn't drive a wedge between those friendly clans in case there was some conflict in the future. Once the Rokkaku were duly subdued and the Miyoshi partisans driven from before him, Nobunaga had only a short distance to travel before he would occupy Kyoto. The citizens of the capital had gone into full panic mode, burying their valuables and fleeing the city for fear of being subjected to abuse at the hands of the Oda warriors. 
the Miosh clan already had abandoned the city for their domains in Awa province. They would have taken their shogun with them, but Ashikaga Yoshihide had died of sickness at the end of October. He had only finally been installed as shogun in February of 1568, giving him an impressive eight-month reign before he passed away. The fact that it took the Miyosh three years to get their acts together enough to properly have him receive succession was part of the reason they were now being supplanted by Oda Nobunaga. The emperor at this time was Ogimachi Tenno, the son of the late Emperor Gonara, who attempted to relocate the imperial court to Yamaguchi almost 20 years before. The court had held Nobunaga's father in great favor, as he had contributed funds to their various rituals, and Nobunaga himself had visited Kyoto in 1559 and was even granted an audience with Shogun Ashikaga Yoshiteru, the older brother of the shogun whom he now championed. Nevertheless, the citizens of the capital and the imperial court received him with little celebration, fearing initially that he was just another greedy warlord intent on wanton slaughter and avaricious looting. To their great and delighted surprise, they were wrong. The Oda clan army that entered Kyoto on November 9, 1568, engaged in no looting, killing, or other excessive behavior. They were kept under strict discipline, and fear of their chieftain's wrath kept them in line. Nobunaga had sent for Ashikaga Yoshiaki to join him, and the would-be shogun entered the city with Nobunaga, a maneuver which modern political operatives might describe as great optics. The emperor was greatly impressed as well, and Nobunaga went to great lengths to ingratiate himself to the sovereign, much as his father before him had done. The Tenno had previously corresponded with Nobunaga back in 1567, requesting that the estates in Mino province, which had formerly belonged to the imperial house, be restored to their rightful ownership, as the Saito clan had improperly seized them. Nobunaga was only too happy to restore these estates, and now that he was in the capital, more nobles flocked to him requesting that he restore their lost fortunes as well. While Nobunaga was certainly a ruthless conqueror, he possessed a political dimension which the Miyosh clan and the latter-day Hosokawa clan seemed to lack. He understood the power of being well-liked by the right people, and he also understood the power of, well, power. While he had managed to more or less subdue the Rokkaku clan and march his army through Omi province, the entire province itself was governed piecemeal by Jizamurai and other smallholding independent clans just like Shinano province before the Takeda takeover we discussed a few episodes back. Owari and Mino provinces were, like Omi, composed of very fertile land and dotted with farming villages. If he could extend his control over all three, he could effectively control the capital's main source of food, which would in turn give him control over the capital by default. Near the end of 1568, Ashikaga Yoshiaki was officially installed as shogun, and Nobunaga's mission was seemingly complete. Optimistic residents of Kyoto may have even wondered whether he planned to return to his domain in Chubu, or even take the fight to Shikoku and drive the Miyoshi clan into the sea. 
Obviously, Nobunaga's designs were much more far-reaching than simply installing a new shogun. In fact, Yoshiaki's installation only served to give Nobunaga even greater legitimacy for future conquests and consolidations. To celebrate his installation as shogun, Ashikaga Yoshiaki arranged a grand night of no theater performances to celebrate Nobunaga's victories and express the Bakufu's gratitude. While there were 13 such performances prepared, Nobunaga stood to leave after the fifth play, angrily chiding the shogun that the nation had not yet been returned to a state of peace, and thus such entertainments were improperly indulgent. As if to punctuate his pointed remarks, he left the capital the next day for his headquarters in Gifu to continue his campaigns conquering Issei and Omi provinces. During his absence, the Miyoshi clan made a move against the new shogunate. In late January, around the time of the Lunar New Year, the shogun was celebrating in Honkokuji Temple. He had taken up residence in the temple because he did not yet have a proper place in the capital in which to live. The Miyoshi struck from Sakai in Setsu province, one of their favorite staging points, and attempted to seize the temple and get control of Yoshiaki, either to kill him or make him their puppet. The shogun's trusted bodyguard, Akechi Mitsuhide, sprang into action, organizing a hasty but effective defense in spite of the fact that many of his warriors had become drunk due to the New Year celebrations. The Miyoshi were fended off, and they soon returned to Shikoku. Nobunaga returned to the capital in haste five days later after hearing of the attack. He was duly impressed at the quick, decisive actions of Mitsuhide and offered him a position as his own retainer. Because of later developments and their consequences, it is difficult to be certain about Mitsuhide's motivations, but in the moment he agreed, and for the time being he served both the shogun and Nobunaga. He may have seen himself as a kind of unifying factor between the two men, or he may have been cynically playing both sides. Again, it is difficult to be certain either way. Nobunaga, for his part, blamed the merchants who operated out of the bustling coastal city of Sakai, claiming that they had supported the Miyoshi's return and even financed their endeavors. He may not have been completely incorrect in this regard, as the Miyoshi had a long-standing relationship with Sakai, and if you remember from a few episodes back, the city was used as a headquarters for a bakufu-in-exile called the Sakai Kubo. The Miyoshi absolutely had roots in the prosperous port city, roots which Nobunaga was determined to sever. Partly as punishment and partly as a way of gaining revenue, he exacted a severe tax against the merchants of Sakai, and strictly warned them against rendering any assistance to the enemies of the shogun ever again. Yoshiaki, meanwhile, was determined to bring Nobunaga into the Bakufu apparatus in a more official capacity. He offered him the position of Kanrei, which once upon a time was the most coveted office within the Bakufu. Nobunaga refused. This manner of exchange would be an ongoing struggle between Yoshiaki and Nobunaga, 
rather than some kind of show of humility. Nevertheless, Nobunaga was the new shogun's most powerful patron, and he returned to Kyoto with a large honor guard in late 1569 to celebrate the official subjugation of Ise province. This power play was meant not only to keep tabs on developments in the capital, but also to intimidate Yoshiaki and remind him of who had the real power. Near the beginning of 1570, Nobunaga threw himself fully into the rebuilding effort in the capital, ordering construction of a new palace for the emperor. Once again we see how grand construction projects were intertwined with an expression of political power. He employed his characteristic hard-nosed discipline at the job site. According to one account, he had a worker beheaded when the man paused in his labor to flirt with a passing woman. Early 1570 was also when Oda Nobunaga presented Shogun Ashikaga Yoshiaki with an official letter bearing his seal and stamped with red ink. This vermilion letter detailed the Shogun's official responsibilities, which, surprising no one, were all ceremonial duties without real power. As though trying to sweeten the pot, Nobunaga announced a new grand construction project to build a proper palace for the shogun to use as a resplendent residence. While it seemed that being the shogun was not everything which Ashikaga Yoshiaki dreamed it would be, it would be wrong to accuse Nobunaga of the same sort of abusive oppression which shoguns experienced under the Miyoshi and Hosokawa before them. Yoshiaki wanted for nothing, and Nobunaga took great care to ensure that he had every creature comfort that he may have desired. The truth, of course, was that Nobunaga was building for the shogun a gilded cage, which, while having every luxury which Yoshiaki might ever desire, was still a cage. Historian George Sansom succinctly described Nobunaga's relationship with the shogunate thus, quote, Nobunaga was willing to show the Bakufu outward signs of respect, but he had no intention of obeying it. End quote. Nobunaga's relationship with the imperial court, meanwhile, continued to develop along positive lines. Gone were his younger days of unattractive rudeness and disrespect for etiquette. He was always a perfect gentleman when dealing with the Tenno who may have believed he had found a savior in the person of Nobunaga, someone who might restore the imperial court as a political player on the national stage. Of course, Nobunaga had no intention of doing anything of the sort, but he did find it useful to make Yoshiaki nervous. Nobunaga was playing both sides to ensure that he always came out on top. Ashikaga Yoshiaki refused to be satisfied with his present situation in 1570. He was constantly frustrated by Nobunaga's undermining and furious that many of his retainers had also pledged fealty to the daimyo from Owari. One of Nobunaga's rules which he had very clearly laid out for Yoshiaki was that he should not engage in politics, but leave such distasteful matters to his subordinates instead, specifically Nobunaga. Naturally, Yoshiaki recognized this for what it was, a way to keep the shogun irrelevant, and disregarded it. 
He began involving himself in disputes between powerful daimyo like the long-term war being waged between the Otomo and Mori clans in Chugoku, but he also inserted himself into disputes between temple affiliate groups. He kept abreast of developments in Kanto and attempted to broker a peace between the Takeda, Uesugi, Hojo, and Imagawa clans, which would have been difficult enough even with a fully empowered shogun, but were laughably pointless in the present climate. Nobunaga naturally was completely aware that Yoshiaki was going beyond the narrow scope he had laid out for him, and grew increasingly angry and frustrated with the shogun. In 1570, he invited many powerful daimyos from around Kansai to Kyoto in order to offer their advice to the emperor and shogun. The actual objective of this junket was twofold. It would allow Nobunaga to cut deals with these leaders, thus expanding his power through networking, and it would reveal whom among the Kansai daimyo were willing to be publicly disobedient to him and, by extension, the Bakufu. Although they were not alone in their refusal to offer even a perfunctory reply or tepid excuse, the Asakura clan of Echizen was singled out by Nobunaga as a threat which he now had a just cause to punish and, if possible, to eliminate. Asakura Yoshikage, after all, had been Yoshiaki's preferred choice of protector, and Nobunaga had little doubt that the shogun would eventually reach out to this daimyo and beg for relief from his present circumstances. Next time, we will discuss Nobunaga's campaign against the Asakura clan of Echizen and see what complications arise from the involvement of his brother-in-law, who was daimyo of the nearby Azai clan. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan. Thank you.